0: Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. You have your Bible with you. 2 Kings chapter 6 is where you need to go. 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, last week, I told you that we weren't going to get in a big hurry to bring this sermon series to a close in the next few weeks. Rather, we're going to slow down a little bit and see as much as we can see as we continue to explore the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. As the narrative unfolded last week, we saw some big stuff about prayer, we saw some stuff about mercy. Saw some stuff about how God is at work behind the scenes, and we are often unaware. We tried to draw these few applications from the text last week. Number one, God extends mercy, goodness, and grace to his enemies through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see this same principle again this week because this is the gospel. And we see the gospel all over the place in the scriptures. Uh, It's not contained only to the New Testament. We see the gospel all throughout the Bible. We see uh, talk about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. And we see the importance of repentance and faith all throughout the scriptures. I told you this quote from David Platt last week, shared it with you. Uh, What kind of God treats his enemies like this? What kind of God shows his enemies mercy? What kind of God shows his enemies? Grace. Only Yahweh. Only Yahweh operates like this. And so we celebrate the gospel today. Secondly, last week we talked about how through prayer we access God's pre-existing power, his pre-existing presence, his pre-existing promises. I told you that that prayer is not necessarily about conjuring something up, but rather laying hold of what God is already uh, at work doing. Thirdly, we talked about how the, the way things look is not always the way things are. And I I want to trust that, uh, especially right now in in my life, especially in this season uh, as a culture. I want to trust that that what I can see with my eyes is not all that is going on. uh, That God is at work behind the scenes in the midst of all this mess doing something incredible. And then we talked about how he's the only one who can open eyes so that people can see. And we particularly applied that to praying for our one this one person in our life who uh, is regularly around us, who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to be praying for them, that God would open their eyes like he did for us, uh, that we would see his holiness, that they would see uh, their sinfulness and his provision for them in Christ, uh, and that he would give them faith and repentance. Uh, We want to be praying for that. And then finally, we talked about how God's presence empowers us to be gracious and kind and not destructive. When Elisha... Uh, is aware that, that the, the army of God basically is around him, that God has his back with chariots of fire and things like that. He doesn't use that to call down destruction on his enemies. Rather, from that position of strength, from that position of power, in the presence of God, he is able to be gracious and kind to his enemies. And we want to learn that lesson and, and employ that in our lives as well. Well, this week we're going to see what is a very ugly scene A very ugly scene that is ultimately the result of the people of Israel's rebellion against God. They are, in the text this week, feeling the weight of the curses that their unfaithfulness to the covenant with Yahweh has brought. So they have rebelled, they have been faithless, they have gone after idols, they have been selfish. And the pain that they are experiencing in this famine is because of that unfaithfulness. And yet even in that context, even in the context of discipline that is coming from God because of their sin, God is going to show His mercy. He's going to show His grace in them. And what we want to see as we study the text today is that both God's harshness in judgment... And his kindness in this provision are meant to bring the people to repentance. Let me say that again. Both his harshness in judgment and his kindness in provision are meant to bring the people to repentance. The purpose behind all of this is to bring the people of Israel to repentance. The question is, will they? Will they repent? Will they turn away from their idols and serve the one true God once again? We will see. Uh, And we might not see this week but we will see as the days unfold whether this brings about repentance on, on behalf of the people. So we're going to study today Second Kings chapter 6, verse 24 through chapter 7, verse 2. So read with me, Second Kings chapter 6, verse 24. God's word says, Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, <clears throat> Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. He said, If the lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor, or from the winepress? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, Give give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Then he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now Elisha was sitting in the house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer, on whose hand the king was leaning, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven and king over the whole universe, we are grateful that you've gathered us in this place today. With so much suffering and pain and confusion all around us, it is good to come together here. It's good to unite our voices in praise. It's good to unite our hearts in prayer. It's good to sit with a posture of submission and obedience and humility under the proclamation of your word. It's good to turn to you in our season of desperation and ask you for help. And we do ask for your help. We pray for a cure for the coronavirus. We pray for healing for those who are ill and for protection over those who are caring for them. We pray for peace in our neighborhoods for mercy, compassion, and understanding between groups that seem to be completely at odds with one another. We pray that you will bring us together, not under a political party or a social movement, but under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that you will do like you did in the first century and take the many with their diverse backgrounds and cultures and make them one family by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, so the way we're going to approach the text today is much like last week, not necessarily verse by verse, but kind of chunk by chunk, paragraph by paragraph. And the first section we're going to look at is verses 24 and 25. So read it again with me. Now, it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, The first thing that we need to deal with in this text is the awkward translation, transition between verses 23 and 24. There are several approaches to explaining this with different scholars in different camps, but I think the simplest approach is the best. It's likely that a significant amount of time transpired between these two verses. There's no reason in the narrative to assume that this is the next day, um, that it's a week later or even in the same season. In fact, there's reason to believe that quite a bit of time transpires between what we saw last week and what we're seeing this week. Because last week at the end of the story, you remember the Syrian army came into Samaria and the king of Israel fed them a great feast, right? That's part of where we left off last week. But now when we pick up the text, there's no food for anyone in Samaria, And so I think we need to see that there is some time that passed. And there's a bit of irony in all of this as well as these two stories are linked together. Because last week what we saw was the Syrians inside Samaria enjoying a great feast. And now we've got the Israelites inside Samaria eating uh, donkey's heads and pigeon dung. There's nothing for them to eat. And the Syrians are on the outside starving them out. I also want to mention, as we think about last week a little bit, that I may have gone a little bit too far in trying to accent how large a force the king of Syria had sent to deal with Elisha. Uh, now, it's, it's clear that he sent more than some special operations unit, uh, more than SEAL Team 6 or something like that. He sent chariots and horsemen and, and, a, and a big contingent of his army to deal with Elisha. But there's no reason to think that he sent his entire army Here in the text this week, though, he sends his entire army. He sends all the army uh, of the Arameans into into the land of Israel in order to confront them. You might not be super familiar with this approach militarily uh, of of the siege, Um, It's something that was quite common in ancient times before there were weapons of mass destruction. If an invading army wanted to cause the greatest amount of trouble, they would often surround a city, a city that is built with walls, a stronghold. Um, The invading army would surround that city and basically cut the city off from all of its supply line and, and they would just starve them out. They would just stay outside of the city, not letting anyone come or go, and the resources within the city would eventually be uh, completely consumed, and the people would either starve to death, or they would uh, simply lay down, lay down their weapons and surrender. And oftentimes, this would happen over a significant amount of time without any combat at all. Like, no soldiers going hand-to-hand, no fighting at all. We're just going to surround the place and, and starve the people out. And that's what, that's what Syria is doing to Samaria in the text that we look at this week. And the details about what's going on inside the city as they're being besieged are absolutely astonishing and completely disgusting. Not only in this part of the text, but especially as we move forward, it's bad news. And, and without going into some kind of complicated conversion of, of uh, measurement here uh, between uh, the, the finances and what is being weighed out, I just want to explain to you that this business about the donkey's head and the pigeon dung uh, is basically to communicate that these people are eating things that they would never, ever eat under normal circumstances, right? It's not as if the people in Samaria made a habit of eating donkey's heads. And they certainly didn't make a habit of eating... Uh, Dove poo. That's what's going on here in the text, that they are are consuming this stuff. It's how desperate they have become. And not only are they consuming things, they would, under normal circumstances, never consume. They are paying an outrageous fortune in order to consume those things. Like hundreds of shekels of silver for the donkey's head and, and just an outrageous amount for the pigeon dung. This is just craziness, but it's evidence of how far they have gone. And what I want you to see and I'll talk more about this in just a minute, is that all of this trouble that that Israel is experiencing in Samaria is a result of their abandonment of Yahweh. That they have been unfaithful, they have been disobedient, they have been rebellious, and those things do have very real consequences. And the people of Israel are feeling the consequences of their unfaithfulness and rebellion. They are within the land. They are within the promised land, and they are starving. They are absolutely starving to death. And within their city, they are surrounded by an invading, foreign, pagan army. And all of this is because of their covenant unfaithfulness. This is, the, this is the judgment of God against them. Look at verses 26 to 29. It just gets worse. It says, As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, My lord, my lord, O king, help, my lord, O king. He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor, or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. It's disgusting, right? It's terrible. But the first thing I want to draw your attention to is this woman and her cry of desperation. We have repeatedly, in our study of the life and ministry of Elisha, made the application that in our pain, we must turn to the Lord. In our desperation, we must turn to the Lord and we must cry out to him. And we keep seeing this over and over and over again. People crying out to Elisha, which I've argued from the beginning is their way of crying out to the Lord. They're crying out to the Lord through Elisha. And we've been trained at this point in our study of 2 Kings that when someone does this, when someone says, my Lord, my Lord, my master, there's this problem or that problem. When they cry out to Elisha, we have been trained to like lean in because we know that something wild is about to happen. That the Lord through his servant is going to take care of their problems and meet their needs in a miraculous way. We know something big is about to happen when someone cries out to Elisha. But notice here... That in her desperation, the woman in this story does not cry out to Elisha. She does not cry out to the Lord. She cries out to the king. The king of Israel, Joram, who has basically zero relationship with Yahweh... He's not in good standing, he's evil, he's pagan, he's inherited all of this mess from his parents and he's just continuing to go down their path. She cries out to the world and not to the Lord. This is all wrong. This woman is all wrong. She is looking to the wrong source for help. I, told, I keep telling you, we must cry out to the Lord in our desperation. And here, the lesson is taught yet again, just from a different perspective. Here we are taught, we don't cry out to the world. The world cannot help us. The world cannot take care of us. We must cry out to the Lord. We must find our provision in him and not make the mistake that this lady made. Notice, as she cries out to the king, the king's reply. It's similar to his reply to Naaman when Naaman came to town looking for healing from his leprosy. You remember this? He basically said, am I God? Am I God that I can heal? Am I God that I can restore life? Am I God that I can take care of this problem? Absolutely not. Here, also, he rightly understands that it's only the Lord that can provide, and he cannot. The king rightly says, I cannot help you. There is nothing to eat or drink in this city. And it's sad, on some level it's sad, that this recognition on behalf of the king of Israel does not lead him to repentance. It should. He should say, I can't help you, let's repent of our sins, let's repent of our idolatry, let's abandon Baal and turn back to Yahweh, and maybe he will help us. It's not what happens here. It doesn't bring about repentance. He connects some of the dots, recognizing that that he can't help and only Yahweh can, but it's not enough for him to change his ways. It's not enough for him to lead the people into faithfulness. And look at how desperate this situation is. This is terrible, right? It's hard to read. It's, it's, it's hard enough to read about people eating donkey's heads and pigeon dung. It, it's more difficult to read about the people of God consuming the flesh of their children. And I don't think there's any way around the reading of it that way. Like that's literally what they're doing, boiling children and eating them because they are starving to death. And not only are they doing that in this text, they're like fighting with each other about it fighting with each other about whose child is going to be next to be consumed. This is, I want you to see, the pinnacle of the covenant curses. God has said long before this day came that this day would come if they abandoned him. God had told them in in outlining the covenant, he said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he said, if you obey me, if you follow me, if you walk faithfully, faithfully with me, there are all kinds of promises, all kinds of blessings that will come your way. But he said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So as he lays out the covenant, he says, For faithfulness, there are promises, and for unfaithfulness, there are curses. And one of the curses is exactly what we see playing out in Samaria on this day. Look at it in Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting in verse 53. God's word says, then, under the heading of curses, covenant curses, he says, then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. During the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you, the man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain, so that he will not give, give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he will eat, since he has nothing else left. During the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in all your towns, the refined and delicate woman among you. Who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes and toward her son and daughter and toward her afterbirth which issues from between her legs and toward her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. What I want you to see here is that long before this day came that we're reading about in 2 Kings, God had said, if you rebel against me, if you forsake me, if you turn away from me, these are the kind of things that are going to happen. And it's exactly what's taking place in Samaria on this day. Leviticus chapter 26 is another statement along the same lines, much more succinct. It says in verse 27, Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, Then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. You will eat. you get this? Like this is the curse. These are the results. These are the consequences of their rebellion against Yahweh, of their unfaithfulness, of their covenant rebellion. And you would think that this would wake the people up, right? That, that they know about. They know about Deuteronomy chapter 28. They've read this before. That they would say, here we are. We're eating We're eating the flesh of our children. Surely we should repent. Surely we should turn back to the Lord. Surely we should forsake the Baals and worship Yahweh alone. You would think that it would lead to that, right? But it doesn't seem to. Will this wake the people up? Will they repent? It doesn't look like it. Look at verse 30 and 31. It says, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Then he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. This is a roller coaster right here, because verse 30 makes it sound a little bit hopeful. It makes it sound a little bit hopeful, because what we have is the king walking around on the wall. He can see the besieging army outside. He can see his people on the inside eating Donkeys and pigeon poo and their own children. He can see the desperation. He tears his clothes as a symbol of distress, right? And what the people see is when he tears his clothes, he's got sackcloth on. Sackcloth, a symbol of mourning and repentance. He's got that on underneath his clothes. And so we read this and we think, aha, finally, finally, it's come to the point where some things are going to change. Finally, we've reached the tipping point where they're going to repent and they're going to turn to the Lord. Finally, we expect the king to say next, I declare, I declare that the Lord is the only true God of this city and we'll turn back to him. That's what we expect, right? But that is not what goes on with the king. That's not what happens. He doesn't have real repentance in his heart. The next verse makes it crystal clear because the next verse, just like his mother Jezebel before him, he swears an oath to kill the prophet within the next day. You remember all that back with Elijah, right? Elijah had this great victory uh, over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And that very day, Jezebel, who is Joram, the king of Israel's mother, says, Elijah will die within 24 hours. She swore an oath, just like her son is doing here. This is not real repentance. In fact, it only increases the severity of their rebellion. Arthur Pink has something interesting to say about this verse when he says, While a nation tramples upon divine commandments, neither prayer and fasting nor any other religious performances are of any avail with him who says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Look at this last line. Pink says, there must be a turning away from sin before there can be any real turning to God. That's what repentance is, turning away from sin, turning to God. And the king of Israel is unwilling to do it. He sees all of the consequences of their sin, and he's unwilling to turn away from sin and turn to God. David Platt says of this particular passage he says he that's Joram the king of Israel acts like his mother Jezebel seeking to kill the prophet he may have worn sackcloth but it does not cover up his unrepentant heart he may put on the trappings of repentance but he's got no repentant heart and Raymond Dillard says it like this he says the king typifies the response of our world to the word of a righteous God it is always a temptation to shoot the messenger when he brings bad news that's what he's going to do, right? Rather than hear the bad news of judgment, rather than see all of this that's going on and bring about repentance, he says, I'll just kill the one who's bringing the news about all of this. We'll just take care of Elisha and we won't have any more problems. Do you see how messed up it is? All, all of this to show you just how far Israel has gone, just how much trouble they have brought upon themselves because of their rebellion against God. Read on verse 32 and 33. Now Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and said, behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I want you to remember for a minute when Jezebel made the same kind of threat toward Elijah that Joram is making here toward Elisha. Do you remember what Elijah did? When he got word that Jezebel was after his head, do you remember what he did? He lost it completely, right? He ran for the hills. He laid down and and said to the Lord, why don't you just kill me now? Why don't you just kill me now? It'd be better for me to, to die than to to go on living. He goes into this pit of deep, dark depression. It's like the the darkest chapter uh, in 1 and 2 Kings, for sure. It's disturbing how quickly he plunges into the darkness. That's Elijah when Jezebel threatens his life. But look at Elisha when Jezebel's son threatens his life. What's he doing? Sitting at home. Sitting at home, teaching the elders. This is the same posture. It's the same kind of language that is set up when we see Elisha with the sons of the prophets, and he's sitting there. Last time there was a famine, he was sitting there teaching them, right? It's the same kind of thing going on here. Elisha, in the midst of all of this trouble in Samaria, not to mention he's aware of the direct threat on his life. What is he doing? He's teaching the Word of God to, to those who will listen. He is giving spiritual nourishment when there is no physical nourishment, And man, I want to learn to be like that. I want want to learn to have that kind of response to trouble. I want to to be a little less like Elijah and a little more like Elisha. He is calm. He is confident. He is collected. His faith is intact in the midst of a threatening situation. Now, when we look at the rest of these couple of verses, the storyline is a little bit difficult to follow um, about who's coming and going where. So I'm going to lay it out for you the way I think it goes. I think it goes like this. The messenger knocks on the door, but Elisha has given orders not to let the messenger in because he knows that Joram himself is coming behind the messenger and he wants to deal with the king directly. It's probably best, I think, to read that last line in the text as coming out of Joram's mouth, even, even if he speaks through a messenger. Even if it's a messenger that that actually articulates it, he is speaking on behalf of Jehoram who is in the room with them. In fact, I I think he's in the room with them because of something we read in the next chapter when it says in verse 2, the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning. So it seems like he's there in the flesh. And it's not terribly odd for someone to speak through a messenger even when they're in the room because we've seen Elisha do this already. And the last statement that he makes... Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? If that's coming out of the king's mouth, it is highly significant. It's basically the king's way of saying, I've tried Yahweh. He has let us down. He has brought this evil upon us. I will not wait for him anymore. I will not wait for the Lord anymore. That is a stunning statement of mistrust and, unbelief. and it is the exact opposite posture of the heart that is full of trust. It is the exact opposite posture of the heart that is full of faith. Those who are full of faith are glad to wait on the Lord. We recognize that He's our only source of help and we will wait upon Him. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 25 verse 3. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed good news, right? But Jordan says, I'm, I'm done waiting on the Lord. The psalmist says, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Psalm 40, verse 1 says it also. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and will trust in the Lord. Joram's got none of that. He's done. He's done with Yahweh. Not wait on the Lord. I'm telling you, folks, we need to wait on the Lord. And maybe we have a season right now where we, we get to do that. We get to say, I'll put my trust in the Lord, and I'll wait on His perfect timing. And I won't say, I'm done with you. I'm looking somewhere else for provision. But we will simply wait for the Lord to take care of us in the best way possible. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. This goes a way that we do not expect. Sin and rebellion just continue to pile up, right? The people have been unfaithful. Consequences have come upon them. They've sought the help, not of the Lord, but of the king. The king has just heaped on more trouble by saying, I'm done waiting on Yahweh. I'll look to somewhere else for help. He's threatened the life of the prophet. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And then we have the prophet saying, I got a word from the Lord for you. Twice he says it, thus saith the Lord. Twice he says that. And what we expect from our fleshly perspective is that the Lord has had enough. And what he's going to declare through the mouth of the prophet is the destruction of these people, the condemnation of these people, the judgment of these people because of their unfaithfulness toward him. But what does the word of the Lord say to these people in the midst of all this? It's mercy, it's grace, it's provision for them. They are hungry. And he's going to feed them. This is absolutely unexpected that the word of the Lord to the king would be one of mercy and provision. And you would think, wouldn't you, that this would bring about repentance? That because of their unfaithfulness, God has brought harsh judgment. They're eating their children. And they just keep heaping it on. And so now he says, I'll feed you. Don't you think this would bring them to say, oh, Lord, you're too good to us. We don't deserve, we don't deserve your provision. We don't deserve food to eat. We deserve what we are getting. You would think that, that his offer of kindness and provision would bring them to repentance, don't you? But it doesn't. Look at the response. Look at the response from the royal officer. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, the Lord's going to give food for us. Yeah, right, we're going to have wheat and we're going to have barley. Yeah, right. He scoffs and sneers. And that is often how people react to the gospel when it is announced. It seems like no matter what, whether the Lord is harsh in judgment or kind in provision, It's not bringing about the repentance of these people. Let's not make their mistake. Let's hear what the Lord has to say. Let's hear about the reality of His righteous judgment against us. Let's hear about the reality of His gracious provision for us. And let's repent of our sins and trust in Him. Let's wait on Him and depend on Him to take care of us. I think there are four major applications from this text for us today. Number one, turning to the Lord and not to the world is the answer. We've talked about this. I just want to keep driving it home for you. I want to keep driving it home for me. In our seasons of need, we must turn to the Lord and not to the world. And this is a little bit of what your Sunday school lesson was about this weekend, particularly in Proverbs about alcohol and food. In fact, there was a line in the lesson that says alcohol over promises and under delivers. And I think that's true, not just about alcohol, but about all the things in the world that we would turn to. All the things in the world that we would turn to in our season of need, they will overpromise and under deliver every time. You cannot find what you need in the world. We must turn to the Lord. He alone is our hope. He alone is the one who can take care of us. And so we must turn to him. Learn from this lady, learn from this king, not to trust in the things of this world, but to trust in the Lord, our God. Turning to the Lord and not the world is the answer. Number two, God is clear and what he has said he will do. God is clear and what he has said he will do. Think back, think back to this blessings and curses of the covenant. Did he not say, if you follow me, I'll bless you. And when they did, he did. And did he not say, when you abandon me, I'll curse you. And when they did, he did. What the Lord says, he will do. And that means that we, in our uncertain days, can cling to the promises of God. In this season that we're living in, where nobody knows what tomorrow holds, we're all a little bit nervous about the future, Right, whether it's the immediate future of going back to school or going back to work or what in the world is the world going to look like in the days ahead, in these uncertain times, we can hold fast to the promises that God has made. Because if he said it, he's going to do it. And that gives us hope in the midst of uncertainty, that there are certain things that are certain and we can hold on to them. And those are the promises of God. So I would encourage you to dive into your Bible uh, maybe, even, maybe even you've got something in the back of your Bible that lists out various promises that God has made to us. One of the ones that we talk about a lot is that he's promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that good to know? That in the midst of all of this, who do we turn to? Who can we trust? Who's going to be here tomorrow? The Lord will be here. He won't abandon us. He won't forsake us. We can trust in him. Isn't it good to hold on to the promise in Romans chapter 8 that he is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Isn't it good to hold on to that in the midst of all this chaos? Man, we could cling to the promises of God because what he says he will do. And as we cling to those promises, we also must heed the warnings in the Bible. We don't just cling to promises for hope. We we heed the warnings and repent because he will do that as well. If he has said there will be trouble if you go down this road, there will be trouble if you go down that road. So don't go down that road. Heed the warnings because the Lord is clear and what he has said he will do. That's number two. Number three, the Lord takes care of his people. And we see this especially in Elisha. As he is aware of the threat against his life, he is confident and steadfast, sitting with the elders and teaching them what God has to say. He knows, Elisha knows that the Lord will take care of him and he moves ahead with confidence because of that. And friends, maybe you don't struggle with this, but I struggle with this. I want to know that that is the case. I want to know that the Lord takes care of his people and I want to learn to, to have some of this calm of Elisha rather than the desperation of Elijah in my life. And the last application is the biggest, always... What we see in this text is that God is full of mercy. Mercy. and Grace. These people have done nothing but rebel against him. What does he offer? He offers to feed them. He offers to take care of them. All of this makes us think about the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We want to reflect, spend some time really reflecting on the holiness of God. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, that he must and will punish sin. And we want to spend some time reflecting on the sinfulness of man, that I have sinned and I deserve only his wrath and condemnation forever and ever. And that creates a huge problem. If God is holy and man is sinful, how could there ever be a relationship between the two? There is no way the man can clean himself up and make himself presentable to God. The only hope is that God would reach down and change something in the man. And why would he do that? Why in the world would God, who has been offended by us over and over and over again, do anything to make us have a right relationship with him? There's nothing nothing outside of him compelling him to do that. It's simply who he is. It's simply who he is. He is full of grace, he is full of mercy. And so he has made a way for us sinful men and women and boys and girls to be reconciled to him through the death of his own son. He didn't just create some formula that would make us right with him. He sacrificed his own son so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, and reconciled to him and have eternal life. Who does that? Who would do that? What kind of God would sacrifice his son to make his enemies his friends. Only Yahweh. And so we rejoice. We rejoice because of the gift that we've been given in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to respond rightly to all this, whether it be by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation whether it be trusting and depending on you and your provision for us, whether it be turning to you and not to the world for answers. Help us respond rightly to your word. We don't just want to hear it and be more informed. We want to hear it and be transformed. Thank you that you are full of mercy, full of grace, because if you weren't, we would be ruined we would be destroyed. Help us to sing in response to your grace today. In Christ's name, amen. So we're gonna sing a song. If you've got questions, pastors are scattered around the room, we would love to talk with you. Uh, If you wanna talk about joining the church, be glad to, to chat with you about that during this time. Maybe you just need to sing in response. This is a good gospel truth that we're about to sing. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. I could not climb and he came to us. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set us free.
1: How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven my living hope who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin And bear my shame The cross has spoken I am forgiven The King of kings calls me his own Beautiful Savior I'm yours forever Jesus Christ my living So hallelujah, praise the one who set me free, hallelujah, death has lost its grip. Sealed the promise you were buried by.